Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On May 2nd, 2011, James Whitey Bulger sat in his Santa Monica, California apartment watching TV. His chest was hurting again, but that was a common occurrence these days. He was 81 after all. On the TV, President Barack Obama was giving some sort of address, but Whitey wasn't really paying attention. To him, it was just background noise. But then, all of a sudden, Whitey heard a commotion outside. People were out in the streets cheering and chanting, USA, USA. Whitey realized it must have been something Obama was saying, so he turned up the volume. Whitey's stomach dropped when he realized what Obama had announced. A team of Navy SEALs had killed Osama bin Laden, America's most wanted fugitive. A sickening feeling overcame Whitey. He was probably the only person in the entire country that wasn't happy that Osama bin Laden was dead. The sting operation reminded Whitey acutely of his own fate. He'd been hiding from the authorities for nearly 16 years. And now that bin Laden was dead, Whitey had just moved up on the FBI's most wanted list. He knew it was only a matter of time until the feds got him too. Welcome to Kingpins, a ParCast original. I'm Kate Leonard. And I'm Alastair Murden. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on James Whitey Bulger, South Boston's premier crime lord. From the mid-1970s to the mid-1990s, he used his position as an FBI informant to strengthen his power base. It was a prime spot to insulate himself from reprisal and rub out the competition. He didn't think of himself as a rat. He was a strategist. Last week, we saw how Whitey climbed from lowly incarcerated bank robber to one of the leading members of Boston's Winter Hill Gang. He used deceit and treachery to further himself in Boston's underworld, ultimately becoming an FBI informant. This week, we'll learn how Whitey became the sole leader of the Winter Hill Gang, his manipulation of the FBI, and how his brazen overconfidence led to his downfall. Coming up, we'll see how Whitey started strong-arming the FBI. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It goes down. It go down in the field. 
21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. By 1975, 46-year-old South Boston mobster James Whitey Bulger was feeling good. He had just made a deal with an old neighborhood friend, John Connolly, to provide information on the Italian mafia to the FBI. Whitey and his partner, Stephen Fleming, were even allowed to continue their illegal gambling and loan sharking operations to maintain his criminal credibility. This was a fairly common FBI procedure at the time. However, informants were immediately cut loose and prosecuted should their crimes escalate into something so dire as to not be ignored. Something like murder. Thanks to J. Edgar Hoover, the cardinal rule when dealing with informants simply seemed to be make sure they never embarrass the agency. 35-year-old FBI agent John Connolly was happy with the deal as well. Informants were the lifeblood of modern FBI investigations, the road to promotions, raises, fame, and power. It was, by all means, a mutually beneficial arrangement. Whitey spent his first year with the FBI proving he was a star informant. He passed along countless stories of the New England Mafia's inner workings, who was talking to whom, who was going to get hit, who had faked a heart attack to avoid a grand jury subpoena. Everything. Of course, much of it was just mobster gossip. But it impressed the Boston FBI office. They felt like they really had a man inside the city's underworld. By 1976, they had upgraded both Whitey and Flemmy to top echelon informants. But Whitey wasn't just feeding them harmless gossip. He was using his connection with Connolly to get his enemies arrested and protect his allies. On one occasion, he reportedly ratted out the location of a rival who was hiding in New Hampshire. On another, he supposedly lied to Connolly, telling him that an enforcer of his who was accused of murder had, quote-unquote, nothing to do with it. All the while... Whitey was consolidating his hold over his Winter Hill Gang enterprises. Gambling and loan sharking were joined by money-making practices like extortion and numbers, and even murder. Whitey quickly realized that Connolly was willing to look the other way on practically anything he did so long as Whitey delivered Connolly good information on the Italians. 
Whitey was like a battery pack for Connolly's career. But soon, one of Whitey's schemes would show him just how far Connolly was willing to go to protect his new informant. In the early 1970s, the Winter Hill Gang partnered with a man named Anthony Fat Tony Chula to fix horse races. They bribed jockeys with various sums, anywhere from 800 to thousands of dollars, just to throw a race. But sometime in the mid-1970s, a jockey working for Chula began cooperating with the authorities. He gave up Chula, who was then arrested and sentenced to four to six years in prison. In 1976, Chula broke. He wanted a commuted sentence and was willing to give up the Winter Hill Gang to get it. He gave a list of names, including Whitey Bulger and Stephen Flemmy, as accomplices. By the end of 1978, the authorities had all they needed for indictments. Whitey was almost certain that he would be going back to jail, the place he vowed he'd never return. His only remaining option was to see if his contacts at the FBI could save him. Whitey met with Connolly at his Southie townhouse and swore that he was not involved in the horse racing scheme. True or not, that was enough for John Connolly. He agreed to meet with his supervisor and the prosecutor leading the case. And when he brought it, Connolly's pitch to the two men was hard to argue against. The FBI was gearing up to take down the Italian mafia. Whitey and Flemmy had proven that they had an inside line to the mobsters. Top echelon informants like these should be left off any indictment. It worked. When the indictments eventually came down in 1979, Whitey and Flemmy's names were noticeably absent. Nearly everyone else in Winter Hill, of course, was listed as culpable. For whatever reason, none of the indicted Winter Hill members made a big deal that Whitey and Flemmy weren't going to prison. They were unaware of the pair's informant status and probably chalked it all up to good luck. As for Whitey, with his friends all going into jail or potentially fleeing into hiding, he suddenly found himself becoming the leader of the Winter Hill Gang. It had been a bloodless coup. But the greatest spoil Whitey reaped from the horse racing fallout was more subtle. He better understood his relationship with John Connolly and with the FBI. After all, Connolly protected the duo from a federal case. While this didn't necessarily break any of the FBI's informant rules, this is apparently the first time he had taken steps to greatly bend them. And as the 1970s gave way to the 1980s, Whitey wondered how much farther Connolly would be willing to go to protect his prized informants. Now at the helm of Winter Hill, Whitey and Flemmy moved their headquarters to an auto repair shop on Lancaster Street, only a few blocks away from the Boston Garden. It was a more centralized location, close to their friends in the mafia and the FBI. But their new headquarters was soon compromised, the Massachusetts State Police, Stateys for short, had been following Whitey's career for years and were desperate to pin something on him. As luck would have it, they stumbled upon the auto garage by accident in 1980 and set up a surveillance post in a nearby flophouse. The State Police quickly realized that the Lancaster Street Garage was one of the top meeting places for the Boston underworld. 
It was frequented not only by bookies and loan sharks, but drug dealers, gamblers, thieves, and even senior New England Mafia leadership. However, a few months after the relocation, the Stadies were confused why Whitey and Flemmy suddenly stopped doing business at the shop. Where had the mob activity gone? Thanks in part to John Connolly, elsewhere it seemed. He'd heard about the state sting operation from another official and passed the message to Whitey not to talk business in the shop. In essence, Connolly sabotaged another agency's investigation of his informants. The rules bent a little more. Whitey and Flemmy were thrilled to have the state police off their backs, but that didn't mean the Stadies had completely given up. They suspected Whitey was working with the FBI in some capacity, and they paid a visit to the Bureau's offices to complain. While Whitey and Flemmy had Connolly on their side, the FBI's top brass was a different story. They liked the information the two men provided, but with the pressure from the state police, the informants were quickly becoming a liability. It wouldn't reflect well on the FBI if their star informants kept attracting investigations from other law enforcement agencies. The Bureau's leadership was considering cutting them loose. Which wouldn't bode well for Connolly. Not only were the two gangsters his tickets for promotion, but they could seriously embarrass the Boston division of the FBI if they ever decided to talk. Connolly needed a way to ensure Whitey and Flemmy remained informants for the foreseeable future. Fortunately, the FBI was about to launch an ambitious plan in the fall of 1980, bug the New England Mafia's headquarters. Connolly saw this as an opportunity to prove how valuable the duo was. The FBI was unsure of where to plant a bug, since they didn't have access to the Mafia's headquarters at 98 Prince Street. But Whitey and Flemmy did. Connolly told them to arrange a meeting, get inside, and write down any information they considered vital to the investigation. So in late November 1980, 51-year-old Whitey and 46-year-old Flemmy met with the Mafia. They chatted with the mobsters about sports betting and a $65,000 blackjack debt that someone owed. After the meeting, Whitey and Flemmy paid Connolly a visit. The only evidence to come from that meeting was Flemmy's poorly sketched map of the room they were all in, which highlighted the windows, a television, and not much else. The information was largely useless in helping the FBI determine exactly where to plant a bug. Regardless, Agents were confident to push on and plant it anyway. From that point on, Whitey and Flemmy were portrayed as an integral part of the case against the Mafia. They were now locked in as informants. Whitey sensed it was a tipping point. He'd seen the FBI protect him in two separate investigations, and he saw the lengths Connolly would go to to keep him on as an informant. As long as he didn't make any major slip-ups, he felt like he was untouchable. But mistakes were coming, and one would soon test his relationship with the FBI and stretch Connolly's rule-bending to its breaking point. Coming up, an assassination puts Whitey's relationship with the FBI on the rocks. Hello, listeners. Alastair here. It's the spookiest season of the year, and Parcast Network has many chilling surprises lined up for you. 
starting with its newest original series, a show that I host called Haunted Places Ghost Stories. Every week on Ghost Stories, I retell one of the scariest, most hair-raising ghost stories ever imagined. These stories come from all over the world, including Japan, India, the UK, even ancient Rome, and were written by some of the greatest storytellers in literature. Join me as I bring stone-cold classics to life, like The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, a sinister account of a condemned murderer's final wish and the lengths he'd go to fulfill it. And The Miserere, a Spanish tale of a wandering musician who hears a terrifyingly beautiful song in a burned-out monastery and is doomed to capture its notes until he dies. New episodes air every Thursday, but you'll have chills all week long. You can find and follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, October is our favorite month and one of our busiest. So make sure to search Parcast Network in the Spotify search bar to see all our new shows. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, back to the story. By the end of 1980, 51-year-old Whitey Bulger was feeling confident. He and his business partner, Steve Flemmy, were among the few remaining leaders of the Winter Hill Gang. And thanks to agent John Connolly, they had the FBI firmly in their back pocket. 40-year-old Connolly was feeling confident as well. His handling of Whitey had made him a superstar agent in the Boston FBI office. In his mind, he had Whitey in his back pocket. He couldn't have been more wrong. Whitey had grown overconfident after seeing how far Connolly would stretch to protect him during the FBI bugging operation. And he was about to show Connolly who really held the power in their relationship. John Callahan was an accountant and wannabe gangster. And by the end of 1980, he was in trouble. He'd recently been fired from World High Lie, one of the largest high lie betting companies in the United States, a sport similar to handball or squash. The company's new leadership, a tycoon from Oklahoma named Roger Wheeler, found out someone was skimming money from their profits, and he was planning to replace the entire financial team. Once World High Lies books were audited, it wouldn't take long for Wheeler to find out that Callahan had been taking millions from the company for years. Callahan tried unsuccessfully to buy the company from Wheeler, who refused. In Callahan's mind, this meant then that Wheeler had to go. Fortunately, Callahan knew just the men for the job. Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang. Callahan reportedly met the gang at the Black Rose Pub in the spring of 1981. He promised Whitey $10,000 a week if they killed Wheeler. Callahan assumed that with the boss dead, Wheeler's family would sell him the company. It seemed like good money, 
But Whitey had concerns. His FBI contacts wouldn't be able to do much in Oklahoma, and Wheeler had a reputation there. His death was bound to draw attention. But Steve Flemmy thought the money was just too good for only having to kill one guy. Though he could be inflexible toward his enemies, no one had Whitey's ear quite like Flemmy. He cautiously agreed. But that didn't mean that he felt good about it. Whitey said, we're all gonna go to jail. This will never go away, never. On May 27th, 1981, two hitmen waited for Roger Wheeler at the Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They saw him enter the parking lot, heading to his car to retrieve something from the back seat. In full view of the kids at a nearby swimming pool, one of the hitmen crept up beside Wheeler as he sat down behind his steering wheel and shot him in the head. On the surface, the hit appeared to be a success, but Whitey's fears soon materialized. Wheeler's widow wouldn't sell the company. His sons were all but convinced that their father's blatant daylight murder was Callahan's fault. The Tulsa police force and FBI office too shared this belief. Knowing Callahan was an associate of the Winter Hill Gang, it was obvious who orchestrated the hit. Investigating the connection, the Tulsa FBI reached out to the Boston office. Connolly interviewed Callahan, who predictably said he didn't associate with Winter Hill gangsters. Connolly then did his due diligence and interviewed Whitey and Flemmy, who denied any association with the murder. Connolly reported all of this back to Tulsa, as if vouching for their innocence. Stonewall, the Tulsa authorities were out of leads and had to drop the investigation. Whitey was relieved. The FBI had helped him cover up the killing of a prominent businessman in broad daylight. When it could have gotten hairy, the Bureau helped him dodge another bullet. Unfortunately, Tulsa wasn't completely in the rear view for Whitey. It would soon come back to haunt him. In October of 1981, small-time Southie gangster Brian Halloran was arrested for his suspected involvement in the killing of a cocaine dealer in Boston's Chinatown. Halloran made bail, but knew he was still in trouble. So he reached out to the FBI and told them he had information that they'd be very interested in. He knew exactly who killed Roger Wheeler. In fact, John Callahan and Halloran were friends, and Halloran claimed to have been present when his pal hired the Winter Hill Gang for the hit. But the agents leading the investigation weren't sold on Halloran as an informant. In light of this, they went to the head of Boston's Organized Crime Division to suss out more information on Halloran. Shortly thereafter, Whitey received a call from John Connolly. Without any pleasantries, Connolly said simply, Halloran is wearing a wire. It was a shocking moment, a reversal even. Whitey had been brought on as the informant, and now John Connolly was ratting information to Whitey. The rules were no longer bending. They had snapped in two. Connolly hadn't given Whitey any explicit instructions to deal with Halloran, but he knew full well what his informant was capable of. That spring, on May 11, 1982, 
Whitey and his protege, Kevin Weeks, caught Halloran outside of the Pier restaurant in Boston. At around 6 p.m., Halloran exited the bar and got in a friend's car to head home. Then, Whitey pulled up alongside them. He shouted, Hey, Brian! before he opened fire, shooting Halloran 22 times. But Halloran's death wasn't the end of the investigation. There was one more loose end. Connolly grew nervous when he found out that other FBI agents were planning on questioning Callahan. He reached out to Whitey, warning him that Callahan was bound to break under questioning. He didn't need to say any more. Whitey had an associate kill Callahan in the Miami airport parking deck. Several days later, his body was found in the trunk of a Cadillac. A parking attendant had noticed fluid leaking from the trunk and the smell. As frustrated as Whitey was with these debacles, they again undoubtedly proved Connolly still had his back. After all, he had murdered a prominent businessman 1,500 miles away from Boston. Whitey knew the leash was off. Connolly was now complicit in his crimes. Which meant, within reason, Whitey could pursue whatever enterprise he wanted. So he and Flemmy decided to expand. Whitey was now ready to attempt his most ambitious scheme yet, transatlantic arms trafficking. As a strong supporter of the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, Whitey felt compelled to help their fight against the British-controlled Northern Ireland. He actually had Irish citizenship, thanks to his grandmother. The IRA needed weapons, and Whitey had access to both funds and transportation. As it turns out, Whitey had been extorting Southie drug dealers for some time. Their fleet of trawlers, which shipped marijuana up and down the East Coast, could be of use. Whitey's plan was to use the trawler, the Valhalla, to transport guns and ammunition across the Atlantic to aid the IRA. And to help pay for it all, Whitey was going to shake down the drug dealers for donations. He amassed over $1 million, which he then used to purchase firearms and ammunition. The Valhalla was loaded with 91 rifles, 8 submachine guns, 13 shotguns, 51 handguns, 11 bulletproof vests, 70,000 rounds of ammunition, and several grenades and rockets. And at midnight on September 14, 1984, the floating arsenal set sail for the Emerald Isle. There were only five men on board, three Boston Irish gangsters, a captain, and a mechanic-turned-drug dealer named John McIntyre. Unfortunately, the voyage was anything but smooth. The Valhalla ran into two hurricanes and nearly sank. For some reason, Whitey had thought setting sail during hurricane season would provide good cover, but he'd failed to consider its dangers. The strategy nearly cost them a major deal with the IRA. Luckily, after more than 14 days at sea, the Valhalla made it to Ireland and met up with the IRA vessel Marita Ann. Once the weapons and ammo were transferred, the Valhalla headed home to Boston. Miraculously, the operation was a success. Or so Whitey thought. A few days after the exchange, Whitey saw a news report that the Irish Navy had intercepted an IRA vessel carrying weapons. 
the Marita Ann was under investigation. Things only unraveled more from there. After the Valhalla docked in Boston, John McIntyre was soon arrested. Shockingly, his arrest had nothing to do with gun running, but rather for sneaking into his estranged wife's house. In police custody, McIntyre panicked and spilled the beans. About everything, the arms dealing, the drug operations, and everything involving Winter Hill. The cops who arrested him had no idea how deep he was involved in Southie, so they called in a Quincy detective who was already working with the DEA. They'd been tracking Whitey's involvement in the drug trade, but hadn't been able to find a corroborating witness. Now, it seemed like McIntyre was their man. The DEA reached out to the FBI, who sent a liaison to interview McIntyre. The liaison later claimed that Connolly overheard him telling other agents in the Boston FBI office that someone on the Valhalla had flipped. Which spurred Connolly to meet with Whitey. The agent knew someone from the Valhalla was ratting him out, but didn't know who. But Whitey had a good idea. McIntyre lived in Quincy, and if a Quincy detective was involved, he had to be the rat. On November 30th, 1984, Whitey struck. Under the guise of a party, one of his associates lured John McIntyre to a house on 3rd Street. They proceeded to shoot him in the head and bury him in the basement. McIntyre was one of what would soon be three bodies buried there. Whitey took to calling the place the Haunty. With the gun-running debacle finally squashed, Whitey learned another valuable lesson. Stick with what you know. From now on, his main focus would be on extortion and passing tips to Connolly. He even appeared to quit killing. His last known murder occurred in 1985. Connolly, too, was relieved that Whitey had settled down. It certainly made their relationship easier, which was indicative of what was to come. Whitey would allegedly aid him in an operation that was arguably the highlight of Connolly's career. Connolly himself claimed that Whitey played a part in the FBI's 1989 effort to record a mafia induction ceremony. Connolly was ultimately able to bug the house where the ceremony took place, recording the entire event. This recording was the holy grail of mafia evidence. It would become the basis of many mafia-related cases in the following years. Feeling he'd reached his zenith, Connolly retired from the FBI on December 3, 1990. His retirement fund had already been set by Whitey, who had given Connolly around $250,000 during his years as an informant. Around the same time, Whitey and Flemmy too hung up their hats from the informant game. Without Connolly, they didn't trust anyone else enough to risk continuing. And they'd made enough money that they didn't have to hustle anymore. It looked like all three had won the game. They'd gotten away with murder and were entering the next era of their lives as free men. But storm clouds were on the horizon. The Massachusetts State Police and DEA hadn't forgotten about 61-year-old Whitey. And they would soon pursue their old target with a vengeance, no matter how long it took. Coming up, an aging Whitey Bulger goes on the lam. 
Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And now, back to the story. In 1990... 61-year-old Boston crime lord Whitey Bulger retired from being an FBI informant. After 15 years of using the Bureau to protect his criminal enterprises, the aging gangster was ready to live off the fruits of his labor, ready for his golden years. Unfortunately, other law enforcement agencies weren't ready to give up on taking him down. In fact, the organized crime unit of Massachusetts State Police had a new commander. Sergeant Tom Foley had a chip on his shoulder for a certain Southie legend. Foley had long suspected that Whitey was an informant. On top of that, Foley had a grudge against the FBI because they routinely prosecuted fellow state troopers for corruption, yet let their own corrupt agents retire quietly. Hoping to take down Whitey and expose the FBI, Foley concocted an innovative plan. He'd go after the bookies. For years, the Winter Hill Gang had extorted Boston's bookmakers. Foley bet that one of them would be willing to talk. And he was going to keep the FBI in the dark. Specifically, Foley wanted to put the bookies' assets in jeopardy. He hoped that if he took their savings, they'd want to cut a deal. Foley was right. In 1991, the Massachusetts State Police seized over $2 million from a bookie named Chico Krantz. Krantz had grown tired after paying Whitey protection money for years. It took little effort to get him to flip. U.S. attorneys soon used Krantz and other bookies to build a racketeering case against Whitey and his right-hand man, Steve Flemmy. By 1994, the case was ready for arrests. But this also meant that it was time to talk to the FBI. Somehow, Whitey and Flemmy were never confirmed to be official FBI informants. So, a U.S. attorney called the Boston FBI office to find out once and for all. It took 18 days for the FBI to finally admit that, yes, Whitey and Flemmy had been working with them since the 1970s. And while the information surprised no one, it was the admission necessary for the Stadies to finally make their move on Whitey. On January 5th, 1995, Steve Flemmy was arrested. But as for Whitey Bulger, the police couldn't find him anywhere. Whitey had disappeared. John Connolly had once again saved his old friend. Though he'd been out of the FBI for four years, Connolly obviously still had friends in the Bureau. One passed along word of the indictment, and he alerted Whitey. 
So the aging gangster packed his things and fled Boston with his girlfriend, Teresa Stanley. But Teresa grew tired of life on the run. After only a few months, she made Whitey take her back to Boston. But before he left again, Whitey picked up his other girlfriend, Kathy Gregg. Whitey could handle life undercover. He had stashes of money, fake identification, and weapons hidden all over the country. Lucky for Whitey, the FBI didn't want him caught so easily either. He had become the agency's dirty secret, and they certainly didn't want to give him the opportunity to spill what he knew to federal prosecutors. According to some, they quietly sabotaged the search, downplaying credible tips like one from a hair salon in Southern California. And they didn't even interview John Connolly about where Whitey could be until 1997, nearly two years after Flemmie was arrested. Connolly had no idea where Whitey was. As the agents got up to leave, he said, I hope he's never caught. Considering what it would mean to Connolly if Whitey was arrested, he probably meant it. The FBI might have never pursued Whitey if a judge hadn't released a 661-page report in 1999. It was damning and outlined how the FBI had protected Whitey and allowed him to maintain his criminal enterprises. After the report, the Justice Department launched a criminal inquiry into the Boston FBI's practices. This led to the FBI arresting John Connolly just before Christmas of 1999. All of Whitey's former Southie accomplices were eventually arrested, and most of them flipped. The revelation that Whitey was an FBI informant made them question why they were protecting a rat. In 2000, Whitey was charged in absentia with 19 murders in a federal racketeering indictment. This was largely thanks to the testimonies of his closest Winter Hill associates. John Connolly was then convicted of corruption charges in 2002 and later convicted of the second-degree murder of John Callahan in 2008. In total, he faced a 50-year prison sentence. And yet, Whitey was still missing. His trail had gone completely cold. And before long, he eventually became number two on the FBI's most wanted list. Osama bin Laden, of course, was number one. Throughout the 2000s, tips on Whitey's whereabouts sporadically came in. Someone thought they saw him at a screening of The Departed in San Diego in 2006. Another claimed to have seen him on the Santa Monica Pier in 2008. The FBI wasn't much better off. In 2010, the Bureau admitted it needed help. So they brought in U.S. Marshal Neil Sullivan. A skilled tracker, Sullivan quickly realized that the best way to get to Whitey was to find his girlfriend, Kathy Gregg. Unlike Whitey, Kathy wouldn't be hiding in disguise. Supposedly vain, the FBI had reason to believe she'd be doing her best to look as young as she was 15 years ago. By mid-2011, they had created a 30-second TV spot asking for information about Kathy and ran it during daytime talk shows. While some of the leads were dead ends, there was one with promise. It came from Reykjavik, specifically the former Miss Iceland, Anna Bronisdottir. Bronisdottir had seen a story on CNN about the search for Whitey and his girlfriend, Kathy Gregg. She was absolutely certain that the woman with Whitey was someone she recognized as Carol Gasco. 
and the Carol Gasco she knew was a cat lover married to an old curmudgeon named Charlie. And they lived in sunny Santa Monica, California. As it turned out, Whitey and Kathy settled down in Santa Monica, California in 1996, and for the last 16 years, they'd been calling the Princess Eugenia apartment complex home. The FBI sent local agents to stake out the apartment. Once it was confirmed that both Whitey and Kathy were still living in the building, law enforcement decided to apprehend them in June of 2011. On June 22nd, the building manager called Kathy and told her that someone broke into their outdoor storage locker. Kathy said that Whitey would go check on it. At around 5.45 p.m., 81-year-old Whitey Bulger walked outside and was immediately surrounded by FBI agents. They tried to force him to the ground, but he wouldn't comply. There was oil on the concrete. Whitey didn't want to stain his slacks. Eventually, Whitey was escorted to LAX to be flown back to Boston. He was jovial in the car to the airport, joking with the officers and criticizing their tactical errors. Back in Boston, Whitey told authorities that he would plead guilty to all his crimes if they let Kathy Gregg go. He said, She did what all the cops, prisons, and courts couldn't. Got me to live crime-free for 16 years. For this, they should give her a medal. That wasn't how the court saw it, though. Upon hearing she was given eight years, Whitey was appalled. But he'd soon have to face his own trial, which began on June 12, 2013. Prosecutors presented his laundry list of heinous crimes, including 32 counts of racketeering, money laundering, extortion, and involvement in 19 murders. While his defense fought these charges, their main focus was embellishing Whitey's image as an honorable criminal. They wanted to make it clear he wasn't an informant. He paid corrupt FBI agents for information. They also passionately tried to avoid discussing if he'd killed Flemmy's ex-girlfriend, Deborah Davis, and Flemmy's stepdaughter, Debbie Hussey. Killing women didn't fit with the honorable criminal persona they were trying to cultivate. Whitey didn't do much to help his image as a good bad guy, though. When his old allies testified against him, his outbursts were angry and explosive. When his former protege Kevin Weeks entered to take the stand, Whitey shouted, You suck! as the entire courtroom listened. They almost got in a fist fight then and there. When the trial finally came to an end, Whitey was convicted on 31 of 32 counts, including participation in 11 murders. Strangely enough, no verdict was reached on the death of Deborah Davis. His defense team had done that much. On November 14, 2013, James Whitey Bulger received two life sentences plus five years more and was ordered to pay $19.5 million in restitution. So after almost half a century, he had returned to the federal prison system. Whitey spent the next five years being moved from prison to prison. He eventually earned a reputation for causing trouble with other inmates. All of this came to a grisly end on October 30th, 2018, when the 89-year-old Whitey was beaten to death in the Hazleton Federal Penitentiary in West Virginia. 
No one has officially been charged with Whitey's death. As of 2019, federal authorities are still investigating Fotios G.S., a former mafia hitman, as his killer. The suspicion is that he may have killed Whitey because he was, despite a lifetime of denial, a rat. In the end, Whitey Bulger had two stories. One was of a poor kid from the projects who grew up to be a city's criminal overlord. The other was more grim, a tale of corruption and failure in some of the United States' most storied institutions. The school system failed Whitey. It couldn't keep his interest and he was eager to leave. The prison system didn't reform him. Instead, he was a guinea pig to horrible experiments. And the FBI failed too, allowing Whitey to carry out crimes in exchange for helping take down the mafia. But this only meant he abused the FBI's power, bending it so he could rule South Boston for almost 20 years. No one was more aware of this than the Bureau, which has since changed its protocols. It now has updated guidelines for how to handle informants, concrete insurance meant to prevent suffering through the nightmare of a second Whitey Bulger. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Whitey Bulger, amongst the many sources we used, we found Whitey Bulger, America's Most Wanted Gangster and the Manhunt that Brought Him to Justice by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy to be particularly helpful. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Charles Brock, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. Remember to join me every Thursday for the all-new series, Haunted Places Ghost Stories. Don't miss the most chilling spirits ever imagined by authors from around the world. Follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.